Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God of the wilderness, your voice comes to us groaning in the cries of those we marginalize. Teach us to suffer with you and work with you for liberation, for jubilee, for peace. Amen. You may be seated. Well, over the next six weeks of Epiphany, we are moving into vital but troubled territory. In Epiphany, the church basks in the light of Christ revealed to us. Yet simultaneously, we live in a world that is divided by difference, riven by power structures that alienate and marginalize. We are increasingly aware uh, the divisions in our country along race and gender and class that are fracturing realities. Some of us have known this forever, couldn't help but know it, but others of us have been shocked into awareness, especially over the past few years. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Hashtag Me Too. Hashtag Yes All Women. Hashtag Love is Love. Hashtag I Can't Breathe. Now, it would be one thing to deliver a series of messages on social justice that exhort us to go forth and solve these issues. I mean, don't we have the gospel? Don't we have the light of the world? Let's go shine it. But I think that would be a serious mistake because instead, I think we, as a predominantly white church, have a lot to learn from those we think we should save. To our surprise, the light of God shines on us from the other, as God listens attentively to the voices of cries from the wilderness. In showing mercy to the oppressed, God is revealed to them in ways the powerful do not know, so that our salvation, our salvation is wrapped up in listening to their voices. This sermon series, Voices in the Wilderness, which we've returned to time and again over the last five years, will situate us as attentive listeners to theological voices that cry out from the wilderness of oppression and injustice in our society. And this year, we're returning to three voices we've listened to before in past years, um, some of the many years ago. First, today, we turn to black theology. In a couple weeks, we'll listen to the voice of indigenous theology. And then finally, we'll turn to womanist theology. Now, this is a work of decentering what have been the dominant voices. And this can be really tender, vulnerable ground for all of us in different ways. To those in this room who are white, financially stable, educated, especially heterosexual cisgender males, uh, the terrain we're going to travel can be extremely uncomfortable. Uh, The call to yield the center may cause struggle with defensiveness, shame, helplessness, awkwardness. 
I myself, diving into these waters year after year, feel the discomfort of being a white, upper-middle-class, educated male trying to represent marginalized voices that are not my own. Well, at least I'm gay. Could be worse. It, <laughs> it could be worse. It could be Mike up here. <laughs> we need to recognize... Thank you. Thank you. We need to recognize that this ground is tender for all of us in different ways, and how this series will feel and sound to a white heterosexual male who's never engaged these questions is going to be really different from how it would feel to be a black woman listening, which is how it is different from how it would feel to be a gay couple and other minorities, et cetera, et cetera. This will require grace for one another and the very different responses we may have, especially I'm thinking of as our home groups get going again and we start talking about these sermons, having grace for one another, processing these ideas, because we're all in different places. But why is this ground so uncomfortable? Well, one way of getting at this is to ask the question, why does it sound odd when I say white theology, right? That sounds a little weird, right? White theology, but it doesn't sound odd to say black theology or feminist theology or queer theology. We go, oh yeah, yeah. Part of the answer is privilege. The theorist Peggy McIntosh has written a very famous essay called The Invisible Knapsack, which is well worth reading, in which she explores what it means to carry privilege. She writes, as a white person, I realized I had been taught about racism as something that puts others as a disadvantage but had been taught not to see one of its corollary aspects, white privilege, which puts me at an advantage. For example, one, I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. Two, I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured I will not be followed or harassed. Three, I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. Four, when I'm told about our national heritage or about civilization, I am shown people of my color who made it what it is. Five, I don't have to educate my children to be aware of systemic racism for their own daily physical protection. And she goes on and on with more of these examples. And I think we could extend this invisible knapsack to the church as well, because those with power can be pretty sure that they can find a church with music that suits them, hear theology written by people with similar backgrounds that share their assumptions, feel pretty certain they will not be excluded or overlooked because of their race, gender, sexual orientation, or class. And privilege means theologically. Theological privilege means we don't have to listen to the voices of others to think we're taking God seriously. Right? We can stay within our own culture, our own traditions, and think we're doing theology seriously, and the others are nice add-ons. But I think our dominant theological voices miss vital aspects of who God is and what God is up to in the world, because we haven't considered it necessary to listen to the marginalized. So in this series, our situation here will be as students, not as saviors. We are receiving the voices of these marginalized voices as a gift. So then... Today, we begin listening to the voice of black theology in its witness to the God who liberates and to the God who suffers. 
Now, to be clear, black theology doesn't mean the theology that black people have because this is as varied as the theology that white people have. Over the past 50 years, black theology has developed as an academic field with a particular voice, one rooted in black experience of God, but not exhaustive of it. We are going to take this, act, this discipline and especially the work of the black theologian James Cone as our starting point for listening. James Cone has been among the first and the primary theologians to develop this voice of black theology, starting with his 1969 book, Black Theology and Black Power. Black theology is a response to a very particular set of circumstances. One, slavery and racism in America. So we have to begin by acknowledging that Western European kidnapping and enslavement of Africans was underwritten theologically by the Christian church. I have to say that again. The kidnapping and enslavement of Africans was underwritten theologically by the Christian church. On May 4th, 1493, Pope Alexander VI wrote to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain, we, by the authority of Almighty God conferred upon us in blessed Peter and of the vicarship of Christ, give, grant, and assign to you and your heirs and successors forever, together with all the dominions, cities, camps, places, and villages, all rights and jurisdiction over Africa, over anywhere in the world. And this included the right of enslavement. And this wasn't objected to by the Protestant reformers. This wasn't one of the things the reformers were mad about. So begins more than 400 years of Western European Christian enslavement of blacks and 300 years where to be black in America was to be enslaved, segregated, raped, disempowered, lynched, terrorized, targeted by police, and marginalized by power. And so Cohn asks us, the predominantly white church, to listen to this pain, to sit with it. Would you be angry about 246 years of slavery and 100 years of lynching and segregation, he writes. What would you say about the incarceration of one million of your people in prisons, one half the penal population, while your people represent only 12% of the U.S. Census? Would you get angry if your racial group used 13% of the drugs but did 74% of the prison time for simple possession? What would you say about your sons shot dead by the police because their color alone makes them prime criminal suspects? So that's the first thing that black theology is responding to, this history of slavery, enslavement, and discrimination in America. The second thing it's responding to is the failure of white theology to respond to this situation. There has not yet been an adequate response from white theologians, a response which would make racism impossibly incongruent with Christian discipleship. That would make fighting systemic injustice central to the identity of what it means to be Christian in America. And I think the last uh, four, five, six years have really brought this out, the way that being Christian in America is not inconsistent with racism. I think this is a good question for us to ponder. Why have our white churches, for the most part, never articulated a vision of Christian faith which makes rooting out the injustice of racism and crafting a beloved community of all persons a central task of the church, rather than maybe a thing off to the side? 
So Cohn asks why white theologians avoid racism. First, we, we don't have to talk about it. We have the privilege to opt into or out of the conversation as we are comfortable with. Second, it arouses deep feelings of guilt. It's not comfortable to talk about. Second, we, or third, rather, we don't want to engage black rage. Remember that anger he was talking about? That frightens us. And fourth, whites are not prepared for a radical redistribution of wealth and power. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been white Christians and theologians who have opposed racism. But from the civil rights movement until now, black leaders have been disappointed by the refusal of the white church to make significant structural changes to their theology. In his letter from the Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King writes, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between sacred and secular. What King is after here is that in response to black suffering, white theology has offered forgiveness from sins and relief in heaven. In response to calls for black equality, white church structures have offered integration, which means you can come where we are as long as it doesn't change who we are and how we do things. You can join us, but we're not going to change. As long as our values, our language, our culture, our voices are still in control, sure, join us. Indeed, when black presences begin to shift the culture of a neighborhood, uh, white people generally have the option to move, and they exercise that option. Black power directly gives rise to black theology. This is the third hallmark that we're going to look at. On July 31st, 1966, the National Committee of Negro Churchmen released a statement on black power. They write, without the capacity to participate with power, that is, to have some organized political and economic strength to really influence people with whom one interacts, integration is not meaningful. For the issue is not one of racial balance, but of honest interracial interaction. For this kind of interaction to take place, all people need power, whether black or white. Now, I think we need a word on black power here because that's a phrase that makes a lot of white people uncomfortable. And in preparing for the sermon, I sat with my own discomfort around this phrase. Uh, that statement on black power comments, from the point of view of the Christian faith, there's nothing necessarily wrong with concern for power because power, power is the capacity for self-direction for choice. It's the capacity for creativity, to bring things about, to develop. Power, in a word, is life. So to say that black power matters is to say that black lives matter. To say black power matters is to say that unless we value the creative contributions of black people, unless we desire the truly equitable capacity of black people to shape and direct our civilization, we don't really think black lives matter. Now, white power, by contrast, is the attempt to maintain the exclusion of others from power, to extend our culture of dominance. It is, by definition, the violence of empire. 
Black power, on the other hand, is the voice of the disempowered lives crying out to be allowed to have meaning in our society, our neighborhoods, our culture, our churches. So we have to start here to understand black theology, a history of racism and terror in which the church has been complicit, the failure of the white church to respond, and the crying out of black voices for empowerment. Because the encounter of God in black theology is the encounter with a God who liberates, a God who suffers. James Cone is explicit. The fight against poverty and injustice is not only consistent with the gospel, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fight against poverty and injustice is not only consistent with the gospel, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Black theology draws heavily on Jesus' sermon in Luke 4, where Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This text, Cohn argues, is the principle by which we should read the entire scriptures, by which we should understand Jesus' mission, and by which we should encounter God. So Cohn writes, God talk is not Christian talk unless it's directly related to the liberation of the oppressed. Because God has been revealed in the history of the oppressed Israel and decisively in the oppressed one, Jesus Christ, it is impossible to say anything about God without seeing God as being involved in the contemporary liberation of all oppressed peoples. Any other approach is a denial of biblical revelation. Black theology calls us to recognize that throughout the Bible, we see God hearing the cries of the enslaved, liberating his people in Exodus, defending the defenseless, caring for widows and orphans, crying out in the voices of the prophets against injustice, and demanding institutional systemic change, bringing exiles home, and in Jesus, healing, lifting burdens, giving voice to the oppressed, and challenging systems of power. Now, I want to push here, because white theology has a place for these stories and these images. So it might seem like we're saying the same thing, but white theology tends to turn these stories into metaphor about liberation not from social oppression, but from sin and from damnation. So, God liberates from Egypt, yeah, but Egypt is an image of slavery to sin. That's what Egypt is about. That's how we read that story. God cares for widows and orphans. Yeah, that's nice, but if we really cared about widows and orphans, we'd save their souls and get them into heaven. Prophets cry out against injustice. Well, but that's how the world is, and real liberation is going to be eternal life in heaven, out there later. And having shifted the focus from liberation here and now to forgiveness and eternal life, white theology can now use all this language of liberation without intending to lift a finger to liberate. And of course, liberation from oppression is good, but it's not central to our identity. He's like, oh, it's nice if it happens. I worked at a church previously where I was told, yeah, social justice is nice, but really it's about saving souls. So we shouldn't be putting our energy there. That other people can do that work. But what if this 
liberation is who God actually is. If if black theology is right, then we cannot talk about salvation without talking about the restructuring of our society. And here's the rub. As Cohn points out, whites are not prepared for a radical redistribution of wealth and power. Progressive whites don't mind talking as long as it doesn't cost much, as long as the structures of power remain intact. Otherwise, we take our money elsewhere. If we truly worship a God of liberation, we can't avoid asking, how does God's salvation call us to engage and change systems of power and oppression at work in our neighborhoods, at our communities, and in our churches? Because if God is a liberator, then this kind of change is salvation. So from black theology, we learn of a God who cares for our freedom, for our suffering, for the daily injustices and humiliations we endure, a God who more than forgives, who seeks us out to bring us into full, thriving, flourishing participation in the beloved community. That's what God's after. Now, all this talk of liberation drives Cohn to a desperate question. How can one believe that God loves black people in a world defined by 400 years of white supremacy? Is that believable? Part of the answer that black theology offers is that God is the one who suffers with the oppressed. South African black theologian Alan Bosak writes, in the suffering of humanity, God is overcome by grief. God is suffering at the hands of a hostile world. The grieving of God is not in the pain of God for God, but in the pain of God in the suffering of humanity. Now, that vision of a suffering God challenges this ancient Western view of God as impassable and immutable, which are big words that just mean unchanging and without any violent emotions. Western theology has always leaned toward this image of God as this cosmic orderer who's unmovable and distant, who's just fully himself always. But the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus was moved by the suffering of others. And the Greek word that gets used is, it's very visceral. It's like the tightening of the spleen. Uh, It's very physical. The gut tightens. The physical anguish of, of the inward parts that we feel when we observe suffering. Especially in the face of the crucified Jesus, black theology sees a God who suffers for resisting. Bozak continues, the cross is not the sign of God's violence to Jesus. It is violence visited upon Jesus by the evil powers of this world who could not abide his challenging, healing, and liberating presence in the world. And Cohn takes us even further uh, in in a really powerful image. He draws together the suffering of Christ on the cross with the murder of black men on the lynching tree. This is a really difficult teaching, but it's one we need to look at. Cohn writes, the cross has been transformed into a harmless, non-offensive religious object that Christians wear around their neck. The cross and the lynching tree interpret one another. Both were public spectacles usually reserved for hardened criminals, rebellious slaves, and rebels against the Roman state, and falsely accused militant blacks who were called black beasts and monsters in human form for their audacity to challenge white supremacy in America. The identification of Christ's cross with the lynching tree is as provocative and as important an image as I can imagine. 
The alignment of Christ's suffering with black bodies is so close that black theologians with Cohn will affirm God is black. Christ is made black, Cohn writes. Christ is made black through God's loving solidarity with lynched black bodies and divine judgment against the demonic forces of white supremacy. So from black theology, we learn of a God who feels in the depths of God's being our shame, our groaning, our despair, and who in Christ has experienced firsthand the indignity and humiliation of oppression and murder. This is a God who not only observes but enters our experience so that he is not only for but among the suffering. So if God is fundamentally a liberator who groans and suffers and identifies with the oppression of black lives, who's so close to the oppressed that we would more truly picture Jesus as black than as white, what does that mean for us, a predominantly white congregation, to worship this God? I would suggest that our first, first move would be to fall in love with the God who liberates and who suffers with the oppressed and to love the Christ who is black. A very common white response to everything I've said, right? So I, I've been talking for a while now and I, I imagine that many of you are feeling tension. You're feeling tension. And our response is to try to alleviate that tension as quickly as possible. And we might have a number of different ways of doing that. Uh, we might become defensive and point out, well, I'm not, I, I didn't cause this. I'm not part of the problem. Denial, the rejection of the idea that racism is still a present issue, although I think that's becoming less and less uh, possible for us. Uh, helplessness is one way. Uh, I, what can I do? I'm just one person I'm feeling overwhelmed. Or even one of the ways we try to alleviate tension is to feel conviction, convicted and get spurred to action. Let's go fix it. But I think even this last is a symptomatic of our need to get out of the tension. Uh, and I think our first move has to be to go deeper into the tension. Because there are no simple solutions for our racial tensions. There are significant systemic problems in our world which we can't mask over with tolerance or kindness or well-wishing. There's a long-suffering hard work to be done. And it's the kind of long-suffering which will require patience and resilience and hope and endurance. And those qualities can be fostered by loving the God of justice, by loving the God who liberates, by loving the God who groans with the oppressed. If we as students of black theology learn to see God this way, then this provides not necessarily answers, but a new orientation. Because what we develop over time is a new vision to look for and then stand with the oppressed. Because we know that God treasures and is with them. We get a new vision to see systems of oppressions that grieve the heart of God. We get a new vision to seek out the work of liberation that God is up to in the world, in our country, in our city, and in our neighborhood, and to join it. And we get a new vision that rejoices in and pursues the relational, creative, intellectual, social, theological, and political the uh, flourishing and power of black lives that calls the flourishing of black lives gospel. This is a vision of a God who's better than we thought. And we must sit and listen and look.
Will you pray with me? God of the wilderness, your voice comes to us groaning in the cries of those we marginalize. Teach us to suffer with you and work with you for liberation, for jubilee, for peace. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.